if we tend to emphasize, well, just don't have any aspiration or, or effort or striving, just be. But then in fact, what's happening is, of course, we have all kinds of aspirations and striving in our life, in all kinds of mundane things we're striving for, for ourselves. And we don't have an admonition about don't strive in that way. This is sometimes what we fall into with in Zen practices. Don't strive in your practice, but it's okay to strive, you know, for more wealth or comfort or whatever. So then I think we're really kind of hijacking ourselves rather than saying, well, don't strive so hard for these mundane goals in our life, but strive more in practice seems to be more like the classic bodhisattva idea. Reverend Kokyo Henkel began practicing Zen in 1990 at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. He was ordained as a priest in 1994 by Tenshin Anderson Roshi and received Dharma transmission from him in 2010. Kokyo has also been practicing with the Tibetan Dzogchen teacher Sokni Rinpoche since 2003. Kokyo served as a teacher at the Santa Cruz Zen Center from 2010 to 2020. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership on the homepage. So Kokyo, I wanted to read a line off of your, your personal webpage that I just, I was just very drawn to it. And in it, you say, for those vowing to enter and study all Dharma gates as skillful means to assist in the liberation of all beings, it's also necessary to deeply understand the profound and subtle teachings of the Mahayana, the great vehicle of the Bodhisattvas. And you know, very often we talk about Zen as you know, existing outside the scriptures, not based on on words. Why is it important for you as a teacher to sort of weave these, you know, the the scriptures, if you will, the sutras back in, you know, as you're as you're guiding students? Like how does that appear for you? I mean, it's right, it's the almost the first thing that you read on your webpage and that and so you prioritize it. And I'm just wondering why, where where that sits with you. Well, in the world of Zen, there is definitely a lot of emphasis on sitting meditation and uh, being present and the experiential entering the the realm of presence. Uh, but sometimes in Zen tradition, particularly, they have this 
Dharma study and understanding is downplayed a little bit. And I just think it's so important to understand the teachings of the Buddha and the Zen ancestors, partly as a way to understand the meaning of sitting meditation. In other words, um, sitting meditation is not just a matter of uh, sitting in the present and uh, not thinking. There's all kinds of in-depth teachings about the discoveries of the nature of mind and the nature of reality while sitting. And the teachings help clarify uh, what we're doing in the meditation, as well as what we're, how we're understanding our life in general. So um, as the quote you mentioned says, um, we have this bodhisattva vow Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them, or I vow to learn them. So, so a Bodhisattva aspires to understand all these teachings of the Buddhas and the Zen ancestors, not just for themselves and their own understanding of meditation, but as skillful means to to help others understand and practice. Because people enter Dharma and enter understanding through so many. Uh, different avenues. So the more teachings we understand, the more skillful means we have to help others understand too. And so has this appeared, because the podcast is really about practitioners and teachers working with students, and is there some way that that's appeared for you with your students and how you've helped them navigate that? Or, And it may not be, I just sort of just draws... When, um, when people are, have been practicing Zen for a while, and uh, mm-hmm. usually people have heard some teachings in order to mm-hmm. start. Yeah, sure. But uh, I think those who've been doing the sitting meditation for a while, then we can discuss um, the more in-depth teachings slowly. As people are interested, I think people really have to be interested in learning more about what the meditation is. Uh, then. Uh, then slowly we can explore areas that people are, are interested in, then bring that into meditation, and then the student can come check in about does that um, shift their understanding of their own meditation a little bit or not. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is like when new people come, you're like, those sutras are for later. <laughs> Let's start you now with the experience. Yeah, I think, I think most people who come to Zen practice have probably read some of the basics already. Right. And that's why they're coming. They, they understand some of the context. So then I, I think it's good. Just jump in, start sitting, start meditating. And then, and then gradually, um, uh, people can start learning more. The teachings about emptiness, for example, are so subtle and, and actually quite challenging to understand fully. So that might be, it's good, I think, to have a grounding in, uh, in a meditation practice before exploring those teachings have more meaning uh, experientially. Whereas traditionally in schools, especially schools other than Zen, there's maybe a lot of study and um, understanding before really starting to meditate. So I think um, the combination is good, but maybe for most people in present times to get some experiential taste of um, what happens when we sit down to meditate and, and uh, how, the, how the mind kind of shows up 
and in all its craziness when we start to sit. And then from there, we can start talking about the relationship of mind and the world and so on. And has there, you know, I'm just sort of, I don't know why my mind is following this path, but, you know, has there been a point where you've reached with a student and you're like, you know what, I think we should start studying Nagarjuna. And I only throw out Nagarjuna just because I know that you've, you've taught on Nagarjuna. But, you know, is that something that happens where you're working with a student and you're like, I, th I think it's time for you to start engaging with these materials or is it, um, sometimes i can have a that? sense that people might be ready for that but i think mm -hmm. more often it's it's students being interested in in mm -hmm. these teachings and wanting to understand and then um, um start talking about that in some ways i feel like things like nagarjuna who's very difficult to understand actually yeah yeah uh, is maybe not for everybody especially in the zen world um i think people have to have a certain kind of um enthusiasm for that kind of study <laughs> to make it really work because it's challenging and uh so i think that's a nice thing about zen is is um, you don't really have to um study the middle way philosophy and logic of nagarjuna in order to sit meditation but if you'd like to it's a it's a good aid for that um i also practice in the in the zogchen tibetan zogchen tradition and in that tradition they sometimes say um there's different types of people. There's the, there's the kind of pandita style practitioner who who has a very active mind and a very inquisitive mind, and it's really good if they study Nagarjuna. It resolves their doubts. And then there's these other people that are just like, just um, simple yogis, and they don't need a lot of that um, teaching. They but they like to sit all the time, and they and uh, they have a kind of natural inclination um, to just enter that presence of zazen so uh so because there's different types of people it's nice to have this kind of option to um to study the the more difficult especially the indian philosophical teachings of buddhism i think are quite difficult and kind of a, a different style than a lot of the zen teachings that are much more direct and involve stories and dialogues yeah and i want to get to the zogchen but i there was something that you said just a minute ago where you were talking about the you know the people who come to zen and you have this great essay on uh aspiration and i just wanted to ex see if we could explore that a little bit because i think sometimes there's this thought of like if you're trying to get something then you're already <laughs> <laughs> you're in trouble but like but nevertheless like what's the aspiration you know yes yeah um in, in suzuki roshi's lineage in which i practice um there's a lot of emphasis on on suzuki roshi's phrase no gaining idea we, mm -hmm. in practice zen practice we should have no gaining idea and um so like you say, it's like trying to get something for ourselves, uh, trying to attain something that we're, we don't already have. And for the self, the separate self um, wants to uh, be a different separate self, <laughs> a better one, and mm -hmm. wants to get some experience for ourselves. So I think it's a, it's a really helpful teaching. But sometimes I think it can go too far. People can feel like, 
even to have an aspiration um, for wholehearted practice, there might be some gaining ideas that we should just not try too hard. I think that's when it, it goes too far the other way. So, um, of course, Mahayana Buddhism, it, we could even say, is based on deep and strong aspiration to um, completely realize awakening for the benefit of all beings. So I think that's the key pivot there, is that aspiration is not just for ourselves. Of course, happiness and contentment and well-being comes to, to us as bodhisattvas in, in the process. But um, the whole purpose of deepening our understanding and practice is so we can uh, better meet all beings of this world and and face the suffering of everyone and and help in some way so uh if we keep remembering our aspiration in this way for the benefit of all beings then uh, the stronger the aspiration the better mm -hmm. but it's tricky because it's easy to to um have that intention but then the separate self because it's so um kind of sneaky and, and often hidden, our hidden self-centered agendas creep in and we start um, making the practice for our, our separate self. So we have to keep checking, and yet that doesn't mean to um, avoid any aspirations. Yeah, it's, you know, one of the phrases that I hear in, in the school that I study a lot, and I, I actually don't even know who it comes from it could could be in the tradition for a long time but it's uh you know ten thousand years try 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 ten thousand years don't stop and um so there's I think this i've also heard that some sons name had the phrase try mind yeah he does he's got try, try mind. mind yeah which is you know a very aspirational statement in a way like not even try for this life like you have a bunch of lives <laughs> you gotta try and and yet, oh, one other point about aspiration related to this too is that, um, well, if we if we tend to emphasize, well, just don't have any aspiration or, or effort or striving, just be. But then, in fact, what's happening is, of course, we have all kinds of aspirations and striving in our life, in all kinds of you know, just mundane things we're striving for for ourselves. So, and we don't have an admonition about don't strive in that way this is sometimes what we fall into with in zen practices don't strive in your practice but it's okay to strive you know for more wealth or comfort or whatever so then i think we're really kind of hijacking ourselves rather than saying well don't strive so hard for these mundane um, goals in our life but strive more in practice it seems to be more like the classic bodhisattva idea but i think sometimes um, in, in my practice experience, I, I hear things like don't strive in your practice, but we don't mention so much don't strive for, uh -huh. for these, um, you know, kind of self-centered goals. Yeah, I guess I just, I'm, you know, I'm curious if you think that that creates some sort of bifurcated life or if it sort of creates like the practice life is pure and the lived life is profane, you know, somehow impure. Or like, I'm just curious. Just Well, we can get into all these ideas about the, the separation between the, 
the spiritual life and the mundane life. But in fact, maybe it's more a matter of just uh, moment to moment. Um, in any given moment, what's our intention? We can always look at that and think, uh-huh. do I have a kind of self-centered intention in general? And then, then there's that's, that doesn't lead to happiness and well-being or, or uh, the um, furthering of our practice. But then we can see, oh, we can catch that and shift that at any time. And, and uh, we could even say um, recognizing and admitting our self-centered. So that's what I mean by kind of worldly or mundane striving for the separate self. Could even be a spiritual um, striving for the separate self, and we would call that worldly. Uh, but we, if we catch that, then we can admit it and confess it, acknowledge it, and then it turns into a spiritual practice on the spot. You know, it was funny because as I was reading, and I told you this before the we started the interview, but it really reminded me of this um, Martin Luther King sermon that I adore called The Drum Major Instinct, where he's he's saying, you know, ambition isn't bad. It's just what your ambition is for. And you know, the conclusion of his, his sermon is like, you know, I want to be a drum major for justice. I want to be a drum major. You know, it's like, it's not a drum major for me. It's like a, a, a drum major for the for the world. Yes, we put and, so much effort and energy into um, trying to get so many things for ourselves and our, our own um, personal well-being. All of us as, as humans, that's what we do. So, um, so to kind of like use that energy, use that um, amazing capacity of a, of a human to, to really, could even say strive or to wholeheartedly engage our time and energy and life uh, in the direction of the Bodhisattva vow to to benefit others, which which um, interestingly, the classic Bodhisattva vow, um, the way to benefit others most deeply is to be a Buddha, to to fully realize awakening, and uh, sometimes we kind of separate those those two aspects of the vow. We say bodhisattvas really should get off the cushion and just go, um, go out and help people on the street. And of course, mm-hmm. that is part of bodhisattva practice. But, um, but the ultimate benefit, according to the Mahayana teachings, is, is to realize complete emptiness, uh, realize selflessness, realize the, the nature of things. And uh, then we can really be of great, great benefit that's that's hard to swallow sometimes i think because we feel like really is that really as beneficial as as um i don't know helping someone across the street or something (laughs) it seems less um it seems maybe abstract especially earlier on in our practice maybe we don't quite believe it either the possibility of of buddha awakening it sounds good but maybe we don't fully trust that that's really the most beneficial um, uh, aspiration a human can have. You you mentioned the word trust and that it brings, there's another essay that you have about the, you know, the platform suture that I, I just want to read a little passage out of it. And to sort of set up your passage, it's when, uh, you know, Huineng is, he's been given the robe and bowl and he's 
being chased by all these monks who are trying to get it. And he's actually, a general catches up to him, the uh, kind of a foreboding figure, right? And so he puts the robe down and he says, this robe represents trust. Is it appropriate to struggle over it? And then the, the general tries to pick it up and he can't. And your comment, and this is the part that comes from your essays, I think this is one of the greatest moments of the story. He spent, the general, he spent so much effort, days and days, with a whole army of monks searching for, for Huining in the mountains. But when he finally gets to this moment and he hears that the robe represents trust and he tries to pick it up, he can't. Is it, um, is it because suddenly the robe becomes heavy? And this issue of sort of trust in the practice, or I don't, do you want to, I don't know if you remember. Well, in right. some ways, you could hear this story about like, um, kind of like Zen politics, which mm-hmm. sometimes happens in Zen communities is, is um, because we're humans, we, we forget why we entered the Zen community and are practicing. And um, people consciously or unconsciously start getting competitive or they, they get into this gaining idea for themselves. And, and in a way, the community practice and Zen and with the Sangha is so helpful because it brings out these elements that, totally. that are always going on. But then yeah. other practitioners, we help point it out to ourselves, um, to each yeah. other. So, um, so uh, in this story, it's like there's this monk chasing the sixth ancestor because he feels like it's not fair this kind of newcomer got the ancestor's robe and this symbol of the robe has now become this like item that that should be like gotten back and uh you can see because of the the competition and the and the politics in the zen community there's fighting over this symbol and the you know the lineage because who's going to inherit all the temple property and all of this. We can imagine the stories that might be associated. And uh, so, um, so the beautiful thing in this, in the story of the platform sutra is when the warrior monk coming to come back and, and, um, and bring the road back and do justice to the Zen community. Um, when he gets there, he realizes that's not really what this is all about. That's not why I started practicing Zen years ago. He maybe thinks to himself, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what I think the sixth ancestor means by trust—the deepest um, trust in our true nature, even—and that that's what it's really about. And this symbolic robe is just a—that's all it is. It's a symbolic uh, thing, and uh, in this meeting of the sixth ancestor and the the party of monks chasing him down when they meet i think they they realize something in this meeting with the sixth ancestor they stop and remember their presence and their maybe even remember their true aspiration you know it's funny if i'm remembering the story like he he then goes down and he speaks to the other monks and he's like he's nowhere to be found I think it's something like that, right? And I'm just wondering what you, if you think that the sutra is also saying something other than just obfuscation. It sounds like, um, just like uh, the culmination of the, 
Indian philosopher Nagarjuna's teaching is mm-hmm. that when we start analyzing um, everything, everything that appears in our experience, actually in the end, nothing can be found. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there maybe is a double meaning there of the, uh, the uh, when, this, when this monk reaches the sixth ancestor and meets him face to face, he realizes that um, that sixth ancestor, Huenung, is not the one he thought he was. It's not the one that he was chasing up the mountain to get the robe back from. Uh, he's actually reality itself. And there's that beautiful uh, moment of their meeting where uh, in the openness of this warrior monk who can't pick up the robe because it's too heavy, and when his mind becomes more open at that point, the sixth ancestor says, uh, I think that actually the monk asked, well, actually, I didn't come for the robe. I came for the teaching. Yeah, and you right. offered me the teaching. Yeah, and, right. and Huenung says, well, without thinking good or bad or without thinking in these dualities, what is your original face before your parents were born? And, uh, and this is the awakening of this monk. But it's because um, he was already open and ready for that teaching. Maybe if he had tried to pick up the robe and it, and it wasn't so heavy and he actually took it and ran back the hill, he would never have been able to hear that kind of teaching. But you also have, you know, for the past 17 years, you've been studying in the Tibetan tradition as well. And here you are, you're already a teacher uh, or you're, you're ordained more than a decade at this point. And then how is it that you're starting to see the Tibetan tradition as complementing what you're doing? And- well, in particular, um, I was drawn and still am drawn to um, studying in the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition. Dzogchen means a great perfection. And uh, these teachings are, I would say, very similar to Zen. Uh, they're basically emphasizing non-dual awareness. And uh, these days, um, a lot of scholars researching the history of these traditions uh, have discovered a lot of the same roots. Some would propose that, that early Chan in China and er- early Dzogchen in China and Tibet were actually um, it was like one and the same tradition. And then as it moved into China, it, it kind of blended more with Taoism and even Confucianism and Chinese thought. And as it moved into Tibet, it blended with the Bun native shamanistic tradition and, um, and then Tantra and Vajrayana from India. Um, but the core teachings of, of Zen, I think particularly Soto Zen and uh, Tibetan Dzogchen are very similar. And part of the reason I was drawn to study in that tradition and with teachers in that tradition is uh, I started finding that the uh, the kind of subtle explanations and um, teachings about the nature of mind and and uh, non-dual awareness and emptiness um, and in a very practical and experiential way were just more um, thorough. I felt like in the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition. I think the Zen tradition sometimes uh, is 
doesn't explain so much about the meditation. And I think it's somewhat intentional. It's part of the style of Zen is to not um, explain too much and to kind of hint at the practice through poetry and um, stories. And, uh, and I think that's, that's a really helpful method. I think part of the reason for not explaining too much is because the conceptual mind can get too um, involved and miss the directness of the teaching. Uh, and yet, I think Zen began in an environment where people had actually studied a lot of these teachings and the more subtle teachings. And then there could be this expression, this new expression, um, Zen style, um, without explaining too much because people had that background. But in modern times, in America and even in Asia, if people are just practicing Zen without that kind of background and making subtle distinctions about different types of meditation, then we miss a lot of the possibilities, particularly in meditation. So the Dzogchen tradition is, is particularly um, skillful, I, I think, in pointing out distinctions. For example, I think one of the really good distinctions they point out is the difference between they, that tradition calls unsupported shamatha, which is shamatha means calm abiding. So it's like present, letting go of thought, and unsupported means without any object, like the breath. And I think many people practice zazen meditation as actually what this tradition would call unsupported shamatha, meaning like you're just resting in the present with um, not holding on to thoughts, and, it, and that calms the mind, and um, it's a beautiful and necessary meditation. The Dzogchen tradition will point out the distinction between that wonderful meditation and actually resting in non-dual awareness itself. It's a very subtle distinction. But, and Zen hmm. rarely makes such distinctions. So um, that type of teaching, getting, um, being very um, thorough in our investigations of meditation and reality so over the years, um, it really shifted my understanding of Zen practice by practicing with these Dzogchen teachers. Uh, I, I started seeing a lot of Zen teachings in a new way, and in a way that I uh, came to realize I wasn't really fully understanding, um, especially the early Chan teachings in China. You know, what you described, it sounds to me, not being one of these practitioners, but it sounds to me like sort of the shikantaza, unsupported, just sitting style. And so I, I think a lot of people understand shikantaza, that mm -hmm. literally means just wholehearted sitting. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot, just talking with people about their practice, um, it seems to me like a lot of people practice shikantaza, um, understanding it to be what this. Dzogchen tradition would call unsupported shamatha. And, and in the Buddhist teaching, um, shamatha is just one side of the realm of meditation. The other side is vipassana. Shamatha and vipassana are like a pair, and this goes back to the Buddha's early teachings and all throughout all traditions, really. This pair of calm abiding and then direct in experiential insight into the nature of mind and the nature of things. And uh, so we can be practicing this calm abiding and feel like 
um, free of a lot of our problems. And my my root Dzogchen teacher actually says this shamatha, this calm abiding, can solve like ninety percent of our problems. But then, what about this other ten percent? So uh, we might say the investigative aspects of mind, or or just seeing where in this um, so-called unsupported shamatha, resting in the present, letting go of thought without any special object, there might still be a kind of very subtle habitual um, duality. Basically, it's still there's a there's a slight sense of there's somebody here meditating, for example, and. Uh, how to kind of break through this uh, this dualistic um, consciousness that's actually doing the calm abiding, and you know there's different ways. I think in Zen they they de- they generally don't make this distinction between shamatha and vipassana. I think again intentionally don't make the distinction because it's a, the distinction itself is a duality. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, um, for example, the six ancestor we were just talking about in the platform sutras don't say that samadhi and prajna, in other words, concentration, meditation, and wisdom are two different things. Don't, we don't say that in Zen. So that's a little bit like shamatha and vipassana. Um, so early on in Zen, they started saying, let's not divide it up into these two halves. Let's just say there's one, there's one zazen. But again, um, that can be beneficial or that can be like um, a, a way to possibly miss the full possibility of, of zazen and, and true non-duality. Well, and that's, you mentioned, you know, when we were getting ready for the, the talk that you actually had been exploring some Vipassana for the last 10 years. You've been sort of diving into some of those practices. and. It almost feels like at some point it's like you're just leaving behind the the barriers of like this is Zen, this is Dzogchen, this is Vipassana, and you're on this journey into you know whatever it is. Yeah, beyond when, the labels. When I say Vipassana, in this case, I'm not so much referring to the Theravada Vipassana um, mm-hmm. movement, but um, but the word Vipassana means. Um, you could say direct insight, um, or it can also mean inquiry. So it can be the inquiry into how things are um, that results in an insight into how things are. And uh, all traditions have some form of vipassana. And you might say, well, but Zen, Dogen Zen of Shikantaza, that doesn't have this kind of thing, does it? But actually, there's, there's an essay by Dogen called um, the uh, samadhi that is the sovereign of samadhis, zamai o zamai in Japanese. And in this um, essay about zazen, Dogen says, right at the moment of zazen, you should thoroughly investigate, is the world horizontal or vertical? Is the body dropping off the mind? Is the mind dropping off the body? Is the body and mind dropping off body and mind? kind of paraphrasing here because I don't remember exactly what he Mm -hmm. says. In this essay, Dogen says, right at the time of sitting, so not just at the time of reading Dogen, (laughs) but while you're sitting, you should thoroughly investigate all these questions. And of course, his list of questions is a very Zen-like 
Dogan-esque list of questions that's very strange. But I think what he's getting at is um, during Zazen, you, you can explore. And you don't explore in a kind of conceptual way, but once you're settled and present and you're, the conceptual mind is, is not activated in its usual way, then within this space of stillness, the, the mind has a natural kind of curiosity. And we let the curiosity start um, naturally exploring. But the key thing to keep it from just being conceptual thinking is that it's, it's exploring the territory of the mind of zazen, the mind of meditation in the present, and not in a kind of theoretical way, but in a in an experiential way. For example, one of the one of the ways I like to kind of start the investigation, start a, a question I like to ask myself to kind of uh, begin the exploration is just asking: Is awareness present? Is there knowing right now? Am I experiencing? So just to ask that question, it's very simple and it's very direct. And as you can see, it's not a very theoretical, it shouldn't be anyway, a theoretical question. It's just, um, but, but, but asking this question, this directs the mind in a new direction. And there's, we can we can try to answer this such a question in this kind of uh, very experiential and direct kind of way, and then if we can confirm, yes, actually awareness is present. But uh, by asking the question, I'm already in a little different space than I was before asking, and then can continue to ask these questions without leaving the direct experience of the present. And then we can start to explore the, um, you know, in an experiential way, the um, mind creates this illusion of duality of a, of a subject and an object. But, but all this can happen within the, the space of presence in Zazen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Reverend Kokyo Henkel encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting his website, Kokyo, K-O-K-Y-O, Henkel, H-E-N-K-E-L, dot Weebly, dot com. And there you'll find many of his essays, study guides, as well as audio and video recordings of his talk. And I'll include a link to his website in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the Online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Weimar, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Mm-hmm.